Hey everybody, welcome to episode 28 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan, coming to you from my back patio one night. I hope you can hear the euphonious sounds of the crickets in the background, but I have a feeling you cannot. So you will just have to stop for a moment and imagine that you hear the sounds of crickets. On today's show, Brian Snyder of Off the Map Books. He is an author, an adventurer. He grew up in upstate New York, but currently lives in Santa Barbara, California, where he works for an outdoor science school. He and I got together one morning at the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. We tucked away in a corner somewhere outside, away from the numerous field trips that were going through the area, and we had this discussion. So crank up your speakers, put on your headphones, turn up your car stereo, and listen to Brian and I talk about road trips, peak bagging, renegade camping, self-publishing, writing, and getting locked in European towers. Hey, I'm Brian Snyder. I am an outdoor explorer and a writer and adventurer. I'd say an expert in renegade car camping, like so the exploring public lands and finding free campsites and getting myself in trouble and then writing about it. Is that what your books mostly revolve around? Pretty getting much. Getting into trouble? Yeah. It's getting thrown off public land? Not, th- not trouble <laughs> in that way. It's more like trouble in terms of the natural catastrophe of the week, whether it's lightning or bears or storms, cliffs, that that kind of thing. How did you get into the outdoors? Is, does this go back to childhood, or does this start later in life? Well, in childhood, I was lucky to grow up in New York State, but not at the city. It was I was far upstate, so it was a place where I had lots of backyards to explore. Uh, upstate New York is a place where everything was probably once lawed and once farmed, but the land was very marginal, and so a lot of these former farms gradually grew the forest grew back and so where all these little towns are tucked in these hills behind them are these these hillsides where you can explore and find like old rock stone walls you can find like ruined rusty like farming equipment and so it was a great place to have backyards to explore but i didn't get into the outdoors or have the idea of like working in the outdoors until i went and i was able to study abroad in scotland when i was in college where where did you study because if you say glasgow university i'm going to be terribly jealous (laughs) I was in Edinburgh, actually. Have you been to Glasgow University? No, I haven't, no. So Erica and I, my girlfriend who you met earlier, a year and a half ago or so, we took a trip through UK and Ireland. We mm. stopped in Scotland and we stopped by Glasgow University. It's basically the inspiration for Hogwarts and Harry Potter. So if you imagine <laughs> like a less ridiculous Hogwarts, that's what Glasgow University, it made both of us want to go back to college just so we could go there. Yeah, nice. Yeah, Edinburgh, I think, was a bit cleaner. The streets were cleaner, the castles Fewer were Fewer dungeon classrooms. Yeah, exactly. But uh, while studying in Edinburgh, I discovered that there were these like hundreds of ruined castles out there in the highlands and just little bits of ruined towers and places here and there, and that just ignited my imagination. <laughs> Fortunately or unfortunately, my my dorm was right next to a train station so i would find out about oh, a that castle sounds great <laughs> yeah i'd grab a whole bunch of friends we'd hop on a train and go out in the middle of nowhere jump off and then try to find these castles out there and through a whole year of doing this by the time i got back to the states i like i knew i i needed to work in the outdoors like more than anything so i finished up college as fast as i could and started in the outdoor fields and i learned about these places called outdoor science schools there are these places where school children can go, like their schools organize it, and they go, they leave the regular schools, they go there for three or four days, they spend the night out there at these science schools, and people called naturalists uh, or environmental educators will take them hiking and teach them about geology, astronomy, botany. There's a few thousand people that have learned about these careers and are doing this. It doesn't pay very much at all, especially on the East Coast. But these places do give you housing and they give you food. So I found about these jobs, I, and I realized it was a great place to see the entire country because you could work a season in one, one environment, outdoor school, pack up and leave and work another season someplace else. And so I gradually hopped around from um, Maine to Indiana to Colorado to Hawaii and back to California. 
And then I found out in the West Coast, it's they tend to pay the best over there. You actually can survive. Unfortunately, everything. Well, I was going to say, unfortunately, everything costs more. And then I remembered you're from New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These jobs, again, give you housing. They give you food. So it's it's fairly easy to, to save up. Do they give you cool hats and jackets, too? Jackets, sweatshirts, sometimes, yeah. There's no like cool ranger style hat or anything they have you wear. Oh, swag is limited, um, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, all these places are not too well to do. They're run by YMCA's. They're run by Boy Scout camps. They are run by um, a couple by by school districts. But I realized by saving up, I could, in fact, kind of take the summers off. In the summer times, I learned the tricks about camping for free on public lands and a lot of other secrets about how I could kind of do this frugally. Even though I could work in the summertime, summertime outdoor jobs are fantastic. You know, you're a kayak guide or a rafting guide or a mountaineering guide. But I prefer to just try to scrimp and save and go off on my own and have my own adventures. So these schools that you were talking about, how would people find out about those? Because this is the first I'm hearing about them. They sound pretty cool. I'm sure people have children who would want to check them out. Do you know where you could find out information about those? California here... We're in California currently. California has a state environmental organization called um, AEOE. Uh, so if you go to AEOE.org, you can find out about a lot of the schools in the area. These schools tend to be on the outskirts of metropolitan areas because they have to have a base of school children to cater to. So if you go online and just Google outdoor science schools in whatever state you're in, um, you should come up with a list that way. And you just have to locate which ones are close to where you're at. And then bug your teachers, bug your superintendents that your your children should go there. What did you do when you were working at these schools? Did you teach any particular types of curriculums or were you doing more of like outdoor guide type work? What were you doing for them? Uh, these schools do run a bit of the gamut, a bit of the spectrum from like out adventure skills. Like there's some groups that do team building and rock climbing, high low ropes course, uh, orienteering. And there's other schools that, f- that focus only on environmental sciences, like geology, astronomy, botany. And so I've worked a bit of the whole spectrum. Uh, I worked here in Santa Barbara for 10 years at a school that was more environmental sciences. And I kind of liked, liked that, focusing just on how the outdoors works, like how the natural systems of the planet work. Were you able to get the training there, or did you have to acquire that knowledge and those skills prior to getting the job? Becoming a naturalist, early on you can do some, like, on-the-job training, um, and you can do a lot of reading books on your own. I later went on to get my master's in, in environmental education. Every time you move around, you do have to relearn kind of the local animals, the local plants, and local geology. Luckily, the stars don't change. <laughs> right. Well, unless you go to the southern hemisphere, right? True. <laughs> then they yeah. swap around on you. Yeah. Let's go back to Scotland, because Scotland's pretty interesting. So you said you used to hop on trains with your friends and go check out some of these castles. Is there anything that stands out, any particular castle or any particular day or night that you went somewhere that you'd want to talk about? My trips to the Scottish castles were kind of cut and dry. But later on, I, I did spend an extra month after the, the year was over. I, had, I spent a month to travel to Ireland and to hitchhike around Ireland and discover their castles as well. And there was one great night in Ireland where, well, it wasn't a great night at all because it was raining and I was outside still trying to hitchhike. But in the summertime, the, you're nor- in a very far northern latitude, so the days are very long. So it's 10 o'clock at night and there's still enough light and I don't want to camp out in a rainy field. So I decide, all right, I'll put my thumb out one last time and see what I get. And I get a ride by this couple who drives me for about a half an hour, and then it becomes dark, and they drop me off in the middle of the forest, and they point to this this stone keep. It's like a small castle. And they said, like, all right, that's a youth hostel. You should go in there. Camp there the night. <laughs> so I go inside, and I look around. What, what part of Ireland is this? This is more south-central Ireland. Okay. Yeah, south-central. So away from the coastlines. And so I go inside, and there's no lights on at all that I can see. So I'm wandering through these rooms with my flashlight, trying to find, like, anybody. I can't find anybody. I finally I go up to, like, the third story, and I finally see this light shining through a keyhole. And when you go inside and you say, I'm supposed to stay here for the night, they said, who brought you here? And you exp- described the couple, and they said, no one's seen them in 50 years, <sighs> right? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, it was a totally weird situation. So, so you I'm, see this light in the keyhole. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm a little hesitant, but I do open the door. Actually, no, I didn't open the door at all. I was like standing right there, and the door opens on its own. And it's like, Baba Marsha from Wisconsin, and with their kid, <laughs> and they're just there on holiday. And like, oh, yeah, you, you want us to find the hostel owners. They're, I'll look for a trap door in the kitchen. Oh, and they're, sweet. They're that's down a, there. That's a great 
<laughs> that's a great direction yeah. for a trap door. Yeah. So I yeah I go to the kitchen, open the trap door, and there's light shining in from from down through there. I'm like, hey, I I'm hoping to stay here. Is that okay? And they're like, yeah, sure. You know, you just give us the money in the morning. Just look for look for a look for any bedroom. You can camp there. Uh, so close were the there trap. other people in this hostel? It was just me, Bob, and Marsha, and the people that lived in the basement. So there was no one else in any of the rooms or anything. No, like that? no one else. So the bedrooms are like former castle hallways. It's it's but with like bed, just beds put up um, here and there. So it's a really cool place. But were you creeped out since it was the middle of the night and you're by yourself in this old castle? Bob ended up joining me on a little adventure. Okay. Yeah, uh, we we decided we were like, hey, we'd explore the place a little bit because it was their first. He didn't know what the hell was in there either. Right. Right. <laughs> so we go to uh, we find this uh, tower that had a little spiral staircase in it, and so we go inside this tower, and the door shuts behind us and closes and locks. <laughs> and so we're locked in a tower there. We just have to bang on the door. And we, after banging for about 15, 20 minutes, finally the sun goes looking for us and finds us and rescues us from a stone t- tower. And this is actually not the only time I've been locked in a tower in the British Isles. <laughs> but there, that's another story. <laughs> we have time for all these stories. So if you if you want to go through the, the gamut of times I've been locked in a room stories, you're free to do that. Unless it's not that interesting. No, it's 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 pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's hear it. But I, this this habit I have of just getting in, finding mischief or mischief mischief finding me, you know, predates uh, pretty early. When I was fifteen, I was super lucky and got to do a, a trip with some of my classmates to just to Paris and uh, London. And on the way between these two cities, we stop at Canterbury Cathedral and we go on a tour. And this tour is going through the pews, talking about architecture, and it's very boring. I look and I off to my left and I see, oh, there's a little, little corridor through there. And that looks a little more interesting. So I, I leave the group and kind of walking down this corridor. And then off to my left again, I see an open doorway and there's a spiral stone staircase leading up a tower. And I find that very interesting. And so I go inside... <laughs> And it's very dark. It's very dark in there. But I start going up the, the stairs, and the door closes behind me. So what is up with you and doors either opening on their own or closing on their own? I don't know. I have no idea. you got idea. like a door troll or door elf <laughs> following you around the world. There has to be. So the door closes, and it's totally dark. And so I, like, I you know run back down the stairs and like bang at the door. Hey, anybody? And calling out, and nobody comes there. And so just feeling around the door surface, I reach up really high and I notice there's a little latch up there. And I turn the latch, turn the knob, and the door opens. And so I'm like, well, as long as I'm here, I close the door again. And, <laughs> and uh, so now that I know how to go get out, I figure I should explore. And so there are these thin slits of windows on the way up. And my eyes, they're covered with grime, but my eyes slowly adjust to the dim light there. And so I go up the staircase, go up a few stories, come to another door. This door is locked and I can't find any way through. So I have to turn around and I go down to the basement. You know, I reach the same door I came in and, and I keep going down. And then there's this basement. There's these like old artifacts there. They're all dusty, but it's dark. I have no flashlight, nothing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How dark is it in these? Is it just what light can can get through? Uh, yeah. It's possible up at the very top of the tower there was some kind of modern light system that was beyond that door because there was more of a modern lock to that door, that one. But I couldn't find any lights down down there in the basement. And I'm stumbling over stuff, and I decided to decide, like, all right, okay, I got to go back. I'm going to kill myself if I keep going. So I go to back to the door. I turn the latch, open the door, open it, step outside, carefully close it behind me. And after I close it, I turn around and suddenly this this priest is there, like this priest with a red robe is standing like right next to me. I have no idea how he got there. It was like this nin- this priest with like ninja mad ninja skills, and he says, um, "Can I help you?" And little fifteen year old me just goes, not very convincingly, he just says, mm. I- "I'm looking for the bathroom." <laughs> right? Is that what you did? Couldn't manage that. Room? I'm like, mm, "Nope." So he takes me by the arm and escorts me down the hallway out to the main area and then closes this this gate behind me and uh, on this gate there's a sign there that says do not enter a gate that I did not see because it was open on my way through and that's my second being locked in a tower story except that time you were rescued by by a priest so what sorts of adventures do you like to get on you said that you do a lot of renegade camping I imagine you don't show up just to camp so what are you usually out there to do you mentioned kayaking and some things like that what are your main interests 
Well, some people go into the outdoors to have an adrenaline rush or to check out the wildlife that's out there. Uh, I'm really drawn to unique geographic landscapes and, uh, and also to heights. I love heights. I love the tops of trees. I love the tops of mountains. And so I, I'm a peak bagger in the sense that I like to climb mountains, but it's more for just to get the views um, up at the very top. I love views more than anything. And so that's what draws me. Uh, usually is what draws me to mountain ranges, the Rocky Mountains, the Cascades, yeah, the North yeah, the North Cascades, places like that. Clearly you've visited Ireland and Scotland and, and various areas in the U.S. Uh, where are some of the places that you've gone or that you like to go? If you're looking for mountains, obviously you're not going to the flat areas. Uh, yeah, true. Although I love the landscapes of Utah just because of their unique uniqueness, uh, for sure. But I love Glacier National Park. I'm up in northern Montana. It's a place I've explored a lot. I love Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. I love the 14ers of Colorado and the San Juan Mountains in the southwest. Uh, those landscapes are tremendously fun, and in Colorado, it's a little bit less jaggedy in some areas, so you can just explore and explore and explore and not get into too much trouble apart from the weather and animals. <laughs> I've gotten more into the Cascade, the volcanic Cascades, in the last few years. Mount Rainier, I've been lucky. I was lucky to climb that this past summer. Do you do any of the kind of more intense mountaineering, snowy high peaks? Like, have you or would you do Denali or something along those lines? I would do Denali. I don't think I would do Everest, just because once you're at the very top, you're so hypoxic. You know, you don't have that much oxygen, much oxygen in your brain, so your your brain can't really register what you're seeing. You'd like to remember the experience. Yeah, I want to remember them this experience for such a long time. So I'm I'm not that interested in in killing myself just to climb like all the 14ers, all of this, all of that, or the highest of this or that. That said, some of these places do make fun goals to go to um, some of the highest mountains in each in each state i'm assuming you've been up whitney yep been up whitney yeah so whitney for those that don't know is the highest peak in the lower 48 states here in california you now live in santa barbara which there's some elevation here but it's not exactly the go-to city for mountains it's not so what brought you to santa barbara it was this outdoor science school where i worked and that's what brought me to this place and our backcountry here is filled, it has some trails, but it is filled with this uh, terrain type called chaparral, which are basically it's brush, it's bushes, thorny, very dense bushes. And so bushwhacking in this kind of terrain is, is bru- absolutely brutal. You come out with so scratched up, so beat up. So the backcountry here for me hasn't appealed to me a lot it's, it's actually took a while for it to finally have some appeal to me. If you can take the trails that get you way back into the, the mountains there, it still feels like wilderness. We do have wilderness areas here. You just have to kind of get fight your way or like just push your way back enough to, to get to these areas. It's kind of a good location, too, because you're not that far from, say, like the San Juans or, or the Angeles Forest or kind of a lot of national forest in this region. Imagine you have a lot of trips that you head out north, south, east. Well, probably not south because then you'd be in the ocean. <laughs> but but north, west, or east to hit some areas. Yeah, again, in the summertime, I'm lucky to have some, to take summers off. There always is that first day on the road, whether it's getting through the deserts on the way through Vegas, trying to head toward the Rocky Mountains, or getting through the Central Valley in order to get to the Sierras. There's always a, f- a hot day or two that it takes to get to these places. My, my Jeep, um, I have this, a Jeep named Charlie. We've been together for 342,000 miles. Fortunately, Charlie does not Wait, have... 342,000? Yes. With a Jeep? With a Jeep. So how much maintenance is that required? Uh, Charlie has his good years and he has his bad years. <laughs> I've always heard that a Jeep is a lot of maintenance. It can be, yeah. The air conditioning broke 15 years ago. I never bothered to get that replaced. Hey, at least you have it. A lot of times they don't come with it at all. So. Yeah. Charlie is great. Uh, his main flaw, though, is that the engine mounts that hold the engine in place, they can fracture... And so the whole engine just ends up tilting sideways. It falls partially over. It slumps like it's had a stroke. And when that happens, the whole gear stick uh, also tilts the side like it's had a stroke. Oh, so, at least there's a sign, you know. Oh, the engine's fallen again. Oh, yeah, you know. There's this horrible scraping sound <laughs> as the <laughs> as the fan like scrapes again the, uh, the fan shield. And then your first gear is suddenly where third sh- gear should be. And your third gear is suddenly where fifth gear should be. And your fifth gear in reverse are nowhere to be found which can be very 
diff- <laughs> very difficult if you're in the middle of a desert. Yeah, like has this canyon. happened to you in very unfortunate places? <sighs> it's happened three times. And the first time was the most unfortunate because my girlfriend at the time and I were trying to get into Joshua Tree National Park through a, a canyon called Hardu Canyon. There was supposedly this dirt road that I saw on maps that should be there. We end up driving to the, to the wrong canyon. And we go up at seven miles and we camp for the night. It's pretty cool. But the next day, we're just basically driving on a stream bed for the most part. And then we see there's this embankment that's been pushed up by a bulldozer. But I drive up and over anyways. And when I pop down the other side, like the whole engine lurches there. Big shutter, scraping sound. The gear stick shifts to the right. I turn off the engine and realize my engine is, is, is shot. So can you drive at that point? You can, but you don't have a reverse. Now, in where it, where I stopped in front of me was a pit that had also been dug by uh, this yeah, bulldozer. That's not very helpful. Because the road had been decommissioned, basically. And I had canyon walls on both sides. So I was fortunately able to crank the wheel as sharply as I could and do a U-turn. Was, a U- it, was it like an 80-point turn? Well, I couldn't reverse it all. Right, so right. it was a U-turn where I, I barely s- almost scraped the rock wall to, on the right side of the canyon, almost fell into the pit <laughs> as I curved around in the center of the canyon, and then almost scraped the rock wall again on the left side, but managed to, to get and pop myself up and over the embankment again and just crawl down to, down to the highway where I was able to get a tow truck. Yeah, because if you have no fifth gear... You said you do at least have a fourth gear at that point, right? You do, yes. So you you could theoretically get up into the 40s, reasonable speed. Yeah. But is it just tearing up your engine probably the whole time you're driving it, right? It doesn't feel right. No, right. it doesn't sound right. <laughs> it doesn't you, feel right. So. You don't feel like you want to continue that experience when it happens. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's Charlie's big flaw, but he's, he's been a great companion this, this whole 20 years I've been doing this. You've been using that same Jeep for 20 years? Yep. Mm-hmm. Are you one of those who's kind of kitted out your Jeep and you sleep in the Jeep? Or do you tend to sleep outside the Jeep? What kind of camping situation do you like to use? My first cross-country trip um, was with a girlfriend at the time. We traveled for six months with Charlie. And every night, we almost every night, we cleared out the back of the Jeep and we lay down a mattress and we slept in the back. But it meant always rearranging our stuff constantly. And so after that time i never slept in the back of the jeep i would always pitch a tent and this has worked fantastic for me even through the whole summer of like every night car camping but what i what i do though is i inflate like a queen size mattress using my car's battery and so i'll 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 pitch a tent but i'll shove the mattress underneath the tent pop the tent on top and sleep that way and that way i can sleep on basically any surface because the the contours of the ground don't matter too much to be at that point if you've got like eight inches of of mattress beneath you so tell us about renegade camping. You said you're a master of renegade camping or something along those lines. Maybe you didn't say master. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. I write primarily about outdoor adventures. And I suddenly recently realized that, hey, this I don't really explain to people how I do it. So right now I'm writing a guide to renegade car camping, which is basically it's going to be a survey of all the public lands, the different types of public lands that we have in, in, this, in this country. And we are so fortunate to have how much that we do. But it's going to go through national forests, BLM lands, which is Bureau, Bureau of Land Management, the dams and reservoirs, which are run by the Bureau of Recl- Reclamation a lot of times, you know, down to state to municipal park lands as well. So it's going to tell you what to expect when you go to these places, how to best search out um, fantastic campsites, and also, like the tricks that I, whatever tricks I can give to have let you have a comfortable experience, you know, while you're out there, because you're not going to have a porta potty with you, but you're also not going to have neighbors, uh, and you might have fantastic views. You might have a stream to yourself. You might have a hot springs to yourself when you're camped in these areas. So it's an experience that I would definitely highly recommend, both because it's affordable, but also you have great adventures in doing this, and you have it's a. I guess it's a great way to see the country. So this is a book you're working on right now? Yes. It's going to be a, a free book, actually. Oh, great. Do you know what the title is or when you expect to be done with it or anything like that? Uh, in about two weeks. It should be fin- it should be oh, ready to go. so very soon. Yes. By the time this podcast releases, that means the book should be available. Yes. Because this will not be online in two weeks. No. And you should be able to go to uh, the website, um, offthemapbooks.com. And there'll be a button right in the middle that says Explore. And if you hit that button, it should take you either to my first book, which, I'm, which is also f- available for free, or to this, this free book. 
yeah. about car camping. And that will be your third book? It will be, yes. And your second book is coming out later this year, right? Uh, actually, Which the, I guess technically will then be your third book since your third book will come <laughs> out before your second book. I've written two <laughs> books about outdoor adventures, and those actually are both out. The second one came out in November. And this third book is more of a, a how-to guide, and that'll be out in two weeks. Let's go back to before you were, were an author. What made you decide you wanted to write a book, and then what did you do from there to become a published author? I went to school originally, to college, for an English degree. And not to become a teacher is because I did love to write, but writing tended to be slow and painful for me. It's something I loved to do, but it was a slow process. And as I said, I went to Scotland and realized I need to work outdoors. You know, writing's great, but this is so much better. Later on, I've, I was able to kind of combine the two. And here's how. Like when I started taking summers off and traveling, I would meet people I'd, uh, along the way. I would get emails and I would gradually like, you know, develop an email list. And I would write just emails, like kind of like a blog about the places I was exploring. So this blog, you know, developed until I had about 250 people on this list. And then I got the opportunity back in my home state of New York to write outdoor adventure articles for the newspaper. And this was just in the summertime when high school sports ended. Uh, my articles would like pick up the slack a little bit. So I started writing for them. And that's what became the first book eventually. Um, at some point, I took my first three years of articles and created the first book. Book two is the, the next four years of articles. And after I travel this summer, I'll have enough material for third book as well. And are you publishing those personally, or did a publisher approach you, or did, did the people you're already writing for agree to publish it? How did you get it published? I'm publishing them um, myself, personally. Amazon.com has a subsidiary, subsidiary called CreateSpace. And as long as you're willing to do the work of formatting the book yourself... And these are print-on-demand, correct? Yes, okay. If you, if you format the book and you create the cover yourself, you edit it yourself or get or hire people out to do the editing for you, you can submit your book and there's a division that handles the digital copies and there's also CreateSpace, which handles physical copies. So if somebody wants a physical copy of the book, you just order it like a regular and it gets printed that day in up at a in some kind of building, either on the West Coast or the East Coast, and it gets shipped to you just as fast as any other book would. Yeah, years back I... I did the same thing where I self-published a book, except that was before Amazon released CreateSpace, and it was through a company called Lulu, and it was yes. another print-on-demand company where you do the same thing. You put your book together, you lay it out, you submit a PDF, and then they print it from there. How have you felt about CreateSpace's print quality? Print quality is it's usually good. I, I love the covers. The quality of the covers is fantastic there. If you have black-and-white photos on the inside, there can be some issues occasionally. But they're also very good at re returns. So they've they've printed this once. If you need to return, if there's any issue at all, uh, they will. They might ask you to just, just take a picture of it and send it to them, and then they'll just send you a new book. Quality control is, and when you send it out, maybe not the best, but the return policy is fantastic. Are you handling all the design for your books and the layout and putting the cover together and all those things, or did you find someone to help you with that? No, nope, I'm handling that myself. The editing, I did find uh, a group of friends that were willing to edit it for me. Which is great because I think something people don't think about is exactly that. Having other people read it, having people review your spelling, your grammar, your story mm -hmm. elements and things like that. Because I have seen some self-published books where you pick them up and the first thought is not, oh, I'm enjoying the story. It's, oh, this person didn't have anyone edit this because this is just full of grammatical errors and I can't even follow this sentence. Yeah. So uh, it's nice to hear that you're wise enough to know that you should use an editorial team to help you put your books together. Yeah. And I also know my writing improves over time. So like the book is the second time these articles have seen publication. But when I go back and look at the, the books, these articles before I publish them the second time, I'm realizing that, well, one thing I have to do is like every week in the summertime, I have to find a new way to describe mountains, like another, yet another metaphor to describe this right. mountainous landscape. And so when I'm looking at putting them into a book, I'm looking at, hey, is, um, are my metaphors hitting the mark? Are they evoking the right images? Um, I believe my writings are, us are usually very descriptive and immersive. But, you know, sometimes I feel like I could sort of boost the imagery a little bit. Um, I, will, I try to make sure that I'm not using the same metaphors too close to each other, the same words. 
all these articles I've re-edited. They've edited them. I've um, read them to my girlfriend as bedtime stories to get more feedback. I've gone and edited them, edited them again, given them to friends. They've edited them a third time, and then I printed out a copy and I took it with me this summer um, while I was traveling to read it one last time and make sure it was pretty sharp. So book two is very solid. So then basically you have revised every article before you've included it in the book, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully for the better, right? <laughs> for sure. <Yeah. laughs> like what types of stories do you have in the books? So the books tend to be about like the natural disaster of the week. If you open up the, up the book, each book has about 50 stories in them. And so if you only have time before bedtime to read a little story, you know, this is what this book is perfect for. You know, when you when you go to bed at night, you feel like, hey, I want a little short adventure before bed. You just look through the table of contents, look for a good chapter. It's like, ah, oh, Stranded, that's a nice chapter. Or uh, Bedeviled or Crisis on Froze to Death Mountain. You look what seems the most entertaining. And the stories, it, again, they tend to be the natural disaster of the week. So it's going to be a story about cliffs or about bears or about lightning or about hypothermia or about dehydration. Uh, that's that's what I tend to write about because this is what tends to happen to me quite a bit in the outdoors. I, I tend to have a great capacity for, I guess, pushing myself further than is wise. like uh, Or basically overestimating how much daylight I have. Um, overestimating how many miles I can do in a day. So push myself about how far I can go. But because I, I, I tend to do these things, it's bad for my health for sure, but it does put me in some pretty sweet positions. So so sometimes I actually can maybe see something that no human has ever seen before. And that's only because I'm like hanging on the side of a cliff as the sun goes down and then there's like a bear wandering in the meadow below me. But it's only because I'm in this ridiculous situation, which is not good for my well-being, that I'm able to experience these things and then go on and write, write about them. So these are your outdoor mishaps. They are, yes. <laughs> so do you say 50 chapters per book? Mm -hmm. Yep. So you're telling me that you've had well over 100 outdoor mishaps? <laughs> well over 100, yes. And this is just within the last 10 years. So everything, all my mishaps before I started writing for the newspaper are currently unrecorded in, in that form. So there might be future volumes that deal with prehistory. Oh, so you're going to write some prequels is what you're going to do. Uh, yes, and it may be when I'm finally 70 and I'm, I'm bedridden. This is when I finally write about. So do you want to continue this series? The series is further off the map, right? Yes. So kind of like a volume one and a volume two. Mm -hmm. And then you say there's going to be a third volume? 2017. Okay, so yeah. do you intend to continue this series or do you want to branch out into other types of stories or both? I'll be branching out into fiction uh, after that. I, I might be doing some, I'll, I'll, I definitely am doing some more outdoor writing uh, for, I guess, my online audience, but I'll be branching off into fiction. There are some young adult fantasy stories I would love to write. Yeah, some stories that I really need to get out there. Unfortunately, it's not outdoors, but I will hopefully be using the experience I've gained at writing imagery to help these worlds that I want to write about come alive. I'm sure you didn't just suddenly as an adult decide... Oh, I want to become an author now. You've probably been writing since you were pretty young, right? Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. What kind of stuff did you write when you were a kid? When I was in fifth grade, I, I wrote like a 50-page book, in quotations, that was a fantasy novel. And every one of my 16 classmates was a character in this book, and they all had magical powers. And the book was a complete ripoff of another person's fantasy series. So it's embarrassing, embarrassing in that sense. But but you were in fifth grade, I was in and fifth I can grade. tell you this: in fifth grade, it's either fourth or fifth grade. I started to do the same thing. Basically, I started writing a book about me and my friends. Yeah. I think I maybe got forty pages in. So I, I specifically remember we learned the term galleon in school. Yeah. So then I included that in the story. We were traveled in a galleon, uh -huh. and then we somehow got stranded in the Arctic, and then we had to face a polar bear. Yeah, I was doing exactly that same thing. Nice. Yeah. Um, when I was much younger, I was writing stories about puppies. But in fifth grade, I was writing fantasy stories. I wrote a sequel, or I, I was writing a sequel. But then somebody in school got a hold of my magic list, a list that kind of like, it was a list that gave the secret names of all my friends, like what their characters were in the story and, and then what their powers were. In some cases, because I'm in fifth grade, this magical powers of some, some kids was... I don't know, a vague insult to them. <laughs> like if someone's power was like, they could just become mud. Right. That was their only power. One of their powers was to have particularly smelly socks. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so I, I, I was like 
very insulted that someone would steal that. And also just concerned because I didn't want to be malicious. I didn't want... You were worried about the repercussions? Yes. And so I, my book had been... Uh, the teacher had been reading a little bit of my book at the end of each school day. And so I took back the book. And I was very grumpy for a little while. But I just don't want people's feelings to be hurt. So you had completed the whole thing. I completed the first book, and I was writing the second book. See, that's pretty nice, because I never finished mine. I just wrote and wrote, and then I moved on to like a comic book or something. So yeah. I used to make really bad comic books, too. Some ideas are better better if they do not come to completion. Sometimes <laughs> it's better just to move on. Yeah, I have a lot of those. So you wrote this book when you were a kid, then you started to write the sequel. Did you finish the sequel? I did not. So then you moved on to other things. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until you got older that you realized you wanted to write about the outdoors. Yeah, it was finally a a way that my two passions found a way to come together. So you want to write fiction also, you said. Are you interested in combining your outdoor experiences with your fiction writing? Or do you think you want to take it to a totally different place? It's going to be a, a mostly different place for sure. Early on when I started writing for the newspaper, I did toy with the, the, the idea of sliding some fiction into my articles so there'd be like a, a story arc through the summer. So I'd still have these outdoor adventures and mishaps and everything, but there we, I would occasionally encounter like these fairy presences, you know, and mysterious presences throughout the course of, of the summer, and I would gradually learn more and more about it. And then I realized that this is a, a very rural upstate New York audience. They're not going to get this. So his idea was probably better shelved. Right. And then, then also maybe maybe it would hurt your credibility a little bit if people <laughs> didn't realize, no, this one's the fiction one. Uh-huh. It's not one of the true stories. Like, I don't know about this wacky guy who thinks he talks to fairies. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely potential for a lot of confusion. You've got one of your books here right now. I see it behind you. Yes. Would you like to share an excerpt from it or maybe give a synopsis of one of the stories from it that you like, whichever whichever you'd prefer to do? Oh, I see you've got a page marked, a few pages marked. I think you were prepared for this. Yeah. I can shortcut to, let's see, an, an end of one of the the articles here. There's a few spots where I do get a little bit poetic. You know, I'm no John Muir, but occasionally I can stray into that sort of territory. So I'll jump to maybe the end of one of the chapters that deals with the Sierra Nevada. This won't have a lot of danger, but we'll start off at a slightly precarious spot. And now, a moment with Brian. My plan to shortcut the distance from Duck Pass to Deer Lakes via an unofficial trail proved mostly successful, apart from a disturbing descent on a hillside of sparkling green boulders. The rocks there were dreadfully unsettled and seemed to be waiting for the moment when my weight would tip them off balance and trigger a bone-crushing landslide. Twice, I froze in place as I heard and felt the rocks shifting underneath the surface, moving like hidden tumblers in a combination lock, and striving to align in an arrangement that would set everything loose. There was no solid ground to which I could jump for safety. I just had to hope that the booby trap would fail to go off. I hate being able to control the odds, especially when my life is at stake. After negotiating the treacherous slope, I took a moment to appreciate the scenery that opened up to the west. The high Sierra peaks looked to have been scraped, gouged, and chewed every which way, been smoothed over by a millennium of rainfall. Smoke from a small forest fire in the Cascade Valley played the part of the primordial mists, making a relatively young mountain range seem much more ancient. To the east of Mammoth Lakes, in the center of Long Valley, lies a dense concentration of hot springs that frequent soakers refer to as the mother load of the Sierras. It was to this fabled country that I went to retire at the end of the day's journey. My guidebook was vague, but I discovered one of the pools within a labyrinth of dirt roads just before dusk made the directions impossible to follow. The warm water felt glorious, and like the other attractions of the day, it was free of charge. Snowmelt from the Sierras trickled down several miles beneath the earth, where hot rocks next to chambers of magma superheated the water and sent it rising through fractures to the surface. Treasures such as these are usually snatched up and commoditized, but the pools surrounding Hot Creek were available to anyone if you knew where to find them. Once night had fallen, the steam from the hot springs seemed to merge with the cosmic dust trails in the Milky Way, creating an unending arc of mist that spanned the void between the Earth and the heavens. The constellations of Scorpio and Aries seemed to rise straight out of the waters, and as the surface of the pool calmed and the ripples settled, the stars in the sky and those reflected in the pool seemed to be no different, just shimmering points on the same celestial tapestry, uniting the world of earthbound sheep and men with the realms of winged travelers 
and gently enfolding us within the midst of creation. How has the response been to the books? Because I know it's kind of difficult without a marketing department to get to get your name out there. That's that's one of the things that a publisher can bring. So when you self-publish, you're also responsible for that. Yes. Well, I've made a lot of money uh, selling books in person here in Santa Barbara. I had a great release party. That was a lot of fun. There's ways definitely to market your stuff successfully online. It involves like tweaking your keywords in Amazon because Amazon is basically, it's like Google. Google, it's a search engine. And if you can uh, set up your search, your uh, keyword terms, like every when you submit a book, you can put up to seven keywords. And if those keywords pop up when people are typing little words into their Amazon search bar, your book is going to show up. So there's a lot that I can do. I've actually spent the entire, like the last month or two just listening to tons and tons of podcasts about self-publishing. And I've learned- Sounds like you've become a SEO specialist. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've realized I had a lot to learn learn about marketing. And so actually part of this, the reason I've made this guide to renegade car camping and having this ultimate road trip is because that's going to be a guide that I will offer for free. And this guide will actually help direct people to my other two books. So it sounds like local events have been very helpful. And then is Amazon working out well? Are people finding the books through Amazon? They are, but there's a bit of a drop-off right now. And so what people need to do when they publish is find ways that people will keep finding the books repetitively. The advice I hear also over and over and over again is that you have to have a first book that you can offer for free. And in that book, there will be a call to action, which will tell people like, hey, if you want this second free thing, just sign up for my mailing list. And once you have that mailing list, like, so my, my Renegade Car Camping book is going to be, people will get that for free. As long as they just give me their email address, there'll be an email list, and I'll just use that very sparingly. But you will not sell it to Russian gangsters or anything like that, mm, right? Nope, nope. There'll be no spam, no... No schemes of that nature. But when I do release a a third book, I will be able to announce that to my readers. And actually, I'll be able to even offer for my readers to receive the book um, for free as long as they give me a review on Amazon. And so having a building up a mailing list is extremely important if you're going to be self-publishing. So that's how I'm going to help build my base. Do you offer content? Because I know you have a website. Do you offer, say, like blog content or anything like that? I do offer blog blog content because I do still do hikes. Did you just create a word? Did you create blog tent? (laughs) Blog tent. (laughs) Yes. If that word doesn't exist, I I bet it will sometime in the near future. Go to... off the mapbooks.com, you'll find blog tent. Uh, <laughs> lots and lots of blog tent? Uh, yeah, I will be, I'll be sharing stories there. I'll be sharing photos. I don't have Instagram, but I will by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, yeah, the photo on the cover is quite nice. Is that one of yours? It is, yes. Actually. And then all the photos inside, are they also yours? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not just your writing, it's also some of your photography. Uh, correct, yeah. And so my Facebook page is also a place to define my photography. Yeah, so go ahead and give me all those links. So the website you said is further off the map, right? Uh, the website is off the map of books. Right, off the map books. Dot com. Yeah. The Facebook page is Facebook. Just just type in off the map books uh, or facebook.com slash off the map books. You'll find me there too. And then what will the Instagram page be? Because by the time this goes live, no one can have stolen it because you'll already have it. Yes. It will also be off the map of books, just to make it simple. <laughs> all right. I think that is a wise decision. So those are all your places, right? Instagram, Facebook, offthemapbooks.com, sure. which I remembered correctly this time. Yeah. Anything else that you'd like people to know? Anywhere else you'd like people to go? Anything you want to recommend to anyone? Just speaking to the general audience, that we live in a magical environments the whole world itself is 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 crazy crazily magical and if i would get out and explore if you can't you can pick up this book like i hope partially what this book does is it it inspires people just to look at the world as a more magical place because ah there's so the grand canyon that's magical there the north cascades the way those mountains are just sculpted um it's like it's like somebody took hair gel to the scalp of the world and massaged it and created these fantastical shapes uh the fact that there's bioluminescent algae out in the coastal waters so you can watch waves crash in and and they they can glow and spark on their way in fireflies in a like a meadow in kentucky or the aurora borealis up in alaska and these things are all magical they well i hope people get out there on their own to experience those places because I think sometimes in this world, you know, I'm not a very religious person, but, and people that also aren't religious too can feel a lot of, 
um, feel alone and feel isolated. And sometimes you can feel the world is out to get you because circumstances are not always in your favor. But if you can go out into the environment and see some of these crazy, beautiful places there, it can lend people a sense that, yeah, we actually, you know, the universe is generally benevolent. If, you know, if we have these amazing things that we can explore, we have the freedom to do so. Um, that says something about the way the universe is built. And, and that can help sustain our sustain us in our lives sometimes when times get tough so i think you said that so beautifully that i dare not <laughs> bring us to a different topic of conversation so i think we can wrap it up now great and then we can head out and go do some hiking or something i love it all right great thanks a lot for the the chance to talk today yeah yeah thanks for thanks for meeting me here So I made sure to read Brian's book before I finished this episode, and I finished his second book, Further Off the Map, about a week or so ago. And after having read his book, I think that Brian maybe does not give his books enough credit. He pitches them as disasters of the week, but I think there's something actually quite more than that. Each chapter is basically a very eloquently written snapshot of one of his adventures. It's it's like a condensed, digestible travelogue. One of the things I really like that he does is he kind of throws you into the middle of the situation and then lets it play out on the page and then moves on. He doesn't take a lot of time to build up. He doesn't give you a lot of unnecessary background information. He kind of throws you into whatever adventure he's into, lets you enjoy it for a few pages with him, and then it's over. So in the end, you have these great digestible chunks of adventures. And if you're stuck at home and you want to take a few minutes and pretend you're on top of a mountain somewhere in the Rockies or you're at Burning Man or you're on the side of a road witnessing a terrible car crash, you can pick up his book, flip to one of the chapters, read it, and have that experience in a few minutes. It's always a bit of a gamble when somebody contacts you and asks you to read something they've written, and I can say this one's worth reading. So go to offthemapbooks.com, check it out for yourself. You can download some free chapters. I believe you can even download the first book for free. And if you like it, stop by his Amazon page and buy the new book. Also, he mentioned Renegade Car Camping, which should be released May 1st, which is the same day this episode is coming out. So if you go by his website, you should be able to get that free Renegade Car Camping guide, which I intend to go get because... I think it could be very helpful, especially for listeners of this show who want to find tips and tricks on ways to find cheap and free camping. So, offthemapbooks.com, get the free Renegade Car Camping book, and check out one of his other books and throw this guy a few dollars. He's a cool dude. He writes good stories. Let's support our community. I know that Brian is preparing for his annual summer trip right now and probably leaving on that trip shortly. If you want to follow along with that trip, you can do so on his website. Or if you're in the upstate New York area, you can pick up the Chenango County Evening Newspaper and read about it there in his column, Off the Map. Or you can wait for one of his future books, even further off the map or whatever the third one may be called, and probably read about it there. But in the meantime... You should head on over to our website, gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode, episode 28, Brian Snyder. There you will find a bunch of awesome-ass pics of various adventures he has been on, some of which are written about in his current book and older book. So if you want to see some of his photos in full color, go to the website, check that out. Also there you will find links to his site, Off The Map Books, his Facebook page, his Instagram page, and his Amazon author profile where you could purchase his books. And then a few other links. So I mentioned Glasgow University, the coolest university that I've ever come across on planet Earth. There's a link to the Wikipedia page for Glasgow University. And there's a link to AEOE, which is the Association for Outdoor and Environmental Education. If you are curious about the outdoor science schools that we discussed earlier in the show, that is one of the places you can learn more. Listeners of the show in the South, particularly Atlanta, Georgia area, Pensacola, Florida area, Baton Rouge, Louisiana area, I will be in those areas in July of this year, 2016, 
If you'd like to be on the show, if you want to sit down with me for an hour, hour and a half and talk about something outdoor related that you think the audience would really dig, get in touch. How do you do that? Well, let me tell you, my friend, you can email us, go at butcherbirdstudios.com, or you can pick up a phone machine. It can be any type. It can be of the cell phone type. It can be a rotary phone. It could be one of those old phones that you'd see on the Lassie cartoon with the weird little speaker and the crank on the side. I don't care what phone it is, but if you call 818-925-0106, you will have three minutes to leave us a voicemail, and I will respond to that. So if you are in those areas and you want to be on the show, contact us one of those ways. Or if you just want to contact the show, you may also contact us one of those ways. And while you're near a computer, a phone, a television that accesses the internet, or some other device that maybe you're testing for the government that none of us know about that has access to the internet, stop by iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast application you use to consume this and make sure you are subscribed to the show and then do me a solid if you will and rate and review the show and if you're too lazy to review the show just a rating would be great enough next time on the show may 16th jordan urbanovich and evelyn wilroy of perception travel come back and hear a struggle struggle to stay on topic while we discuss world travel, social media, philosophy, and comfort zones. May 16th. See you then. <laughs>